This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibowitz. Shalom and happy fifth Israeli election to you all who observe. The bi-monthly holiday known as the Israeli elections. And my other co-host, tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. I just want to make sure we don't have to fast on all of these Israeli election holidays. Well, pretty soon you'd have to because they're literally wasting all the state's budget on this thing. <laughs> it costs something like $40 billion. Today on the show, we have three terrific interviews. First, we are going to bring you an interview that we recorded live just this past Sunday at the Jewish Federations of North America General Assembly, or as those in the know call it, the GA or the JA. I believe it's pronounced the G. It's Gaga. It's it's it's, right. it's a sport that we play in summer camp. <laughs> and uh, I mean, this was serious Jew Fest 5783. Oh my God. The Jews were all out. Um, we talked to Jewish Federations of North America president and CEO, Eric Fingerhut. You might know him as former congressman, Eric Fingerhut. You might know him as former head of Hillel International, of which he was the CEO and the president, Eric Fingerhut. We just know him as Ebom, and we interviewed him Sunday night. Also, we want to say hi to all the listeners we met there. Our Gentile of the Week is Joe Coscarelli, who joins us to talk about his new book, Rap Capital, an Atlanta story. And we're also bringing you an interview uh, between tablet executive editor Wayne Hoffman, taking over the interview seat from us, and uh, and author Rosalind Bernstein, who tells us about her new book, The Girl Who Counted Numbers. And then for dessert, an exciting announcement about a new project in 2023 that could bring us, unorthodox, me, Liel, Stephanie, and the gang, to your hometown. So if you ever wanted to reach out and touch us, if you ever wanted to throw back a shot with Liel. Or take a shot at Liel. You want to hang on about 47 more minutes. But before we get to all that, guys, I, I feel like I saw you just yesterday. I did. It was at the Jewish Federations of North America, JA, the General Assembly, the Gaga in Chicago, where the, the machers of every Jewish Federation of North America outpost, and there are like a couple hundred in North America, come together to talk about philanthropic work in their community, to talk about how the JCC is doing, to talk about the day schools, to talk about the synagogues, to talk about like the on the ground work that goes into, into Jewish communal life. It really is something actually. There are a lot of hugs. People who haven't seen each other for three years now because of stuff that's been going on. And the three of us got together, which is no mean feat these days. Liel, you were a little bit off your game when I first saw, I, think, I feel like you'd had an experience on the airplane or on getting there. I had a transformational experience as, I, as, I, as it happens, you know, as I so often do on, on flights, it seems. So, you know, the GA was amazing. It was so inspiring uh, to, to be in a room with all these people who really devote themselves to doing, you know, the daily work that counts, that makes the Jewish community run. So I'm sitting there on the plane. I'm already very excited, even just being on the plane to just, you know, be in this gathering. And as you said, it's the first in a few years in person. I'm, I'm pumped. And I'm settling down and this kid comes and sits next to me. He's, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 at most. And he's literally bouncing. I mean, this kid is like kind of, it's like Tigger from, you know, Winnie the Pooh. He's like filled with energy. He's like so, so cute. And it's evident that he's really excited to be there. As soon as he sits down, he tells me that this is his second time in his life on a plane. He's so excited. He's like all into it. He has these cool headphones and he's listening to music. It's like blasting the music and the flight takes off and we get, we get talking and I look at his shoes and he's wearing Yeezys, the Adidas collaboration with Stephanie Bethnick. Kanye West. And then from his headphones blasts the song Life of the Party. 
from the album Donda by Kanye West. And as I'm looking at his Yeezys <laughs> and listening to Life of the Party, he says, yeah, I'm going to Chicago to visit my aunt. I haven't seen her in like two years. I'm so excited. Why are you going to Chicago? Staring at his Yeezys, <laughs> listening to the Kanye. Like, well, you know, uh, Kanye fan, I'm going to the General Assembly of the Jewish people where we decide things. I, I just said, uh, work. I'm, I'm going to work. I'm going to a work thing. Oh, what do you do? To- totally not an assembly of all the Jews all the that Jews matter with the money. The I mean, it's funny. It's like, nobody tell Kanye, nobody tell Kyrie Irving that this weekend, all the Jews <laughs> from everywhere came to one place to talk about the year to come. The funny thing is, it's like actually the sweetest and most anodyne thing where you're like, how do we mobilize our community to do like these three things this year? Like, or like, how do we mobilize our community to be more involved? Right, now that we're coming out of pandemic and reopening the JCC, will people want Pilates or will they want bridge? But to me, I actually think there's something beautiful here, right? Like for all this like conspiracy of what Jews do when they get together, they actually just talk about how they can serve their communities. And it's 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 amazing and it's beautiful. And to be there, just like the quotidianness of the actual issues facing the Jewish people, right? It's security, it's engagement, it's all of this stuff. And it, it actually is so not sinister. I completely agree. This is why I think Sending, well, for so many reasons, uh, suggesting that people who made, you know, outlandish anti-Semitic expressions like Kyrie Irving and Kanye educate themselves by going to a Holocaust museum. It's a horrible idea. Oh, I see where you're going with this. You want to send them to the GA. I want to send everyone, like Kanye should not go to the Holocaust Museum, he should go to like a local shul board meeting. He leaves <laughs> after three hours. Like you guys just argued for three hours. You decided nothing. Uh, I, you clearly have no power or ability to control even your own institution. This idea that we are like an all-powerful monolith that acts as one unit. It's like, have you literally ever met a Jew? Have you ever met two Jews? Have they ever agreed on anything? It's so funny because you're like, the reality is like- He will come out of, of the board meeting and say, guys, I'm so sorry. I'm not apologizing <laughs> for being anti-Semitic. I'm just so sorry for you that you have to sit through this. One of the dominant questions at my school right now as we raise money for a sanctuary renovation to renovate the main prayer hall is when you move from pews to chairs, where do you put the prayer books? Because when it's pews, the books go in that yep. little wooden they rack. They have a the, little, yeah. In the back of the pew in front of reverse Right. The, rever- <laughs> the reverse kangaroo thing. <laughs> The reverse kangaroo on the pew behind you. You know where their pews were to put the books, right in front of you, right in the pew behind you. When you move to chairs, where do you put the books? If you put them underneath the chair, it's really hard to build something that's both accessible and where they won't fall out. And, you know, what if some people have mobility issues where they can't reach around underneath them, which is harder than just reaching out in front to the pew? Like, this is the stuff of American Judaism. Could we do a folding chair with a thing attached to the back, but still let them lie flat? Almost like the front of the folding chair should have an indent so that they can all lie up. Because it's true. It's like, then you have to store them somewhere when the room converts to like multi-purpose, you know. I think think that's the next Yeezy product. It's (laughs) Cedar Yeezy. Machzor Yeezy? (laughs) If anyone has any ideas. Yeah. Could you write to us at unorthodox at talentmag.com and just help Michael solve the chair problem? His his new name is Mignogne. (laughs) I'll be here all day. But honestly, the GA was was so amazing. And I, I don't know about you guys, but like, it was kind of nice to be uh, to be recognized. Yeah, no, Liel, I will. I am the first to admit that I do like being recognized. And the nice thing about it is, it happens two to four times a year. You know, if I go to a GA, and then of course, you know, at the Camp Ramah parking lot, where when I drop Rebecca off and pick her up. 
people will overhear my voice and someone will always wander up and say, are you from unorthodox? I fell about it every year on this podcast. Rebecca says to me, dad, are you famous? And I say, Rebecca, in the Ramah parking lot, your father is very famous. And that, that is the GA energy. It's like, I love going to these places where so many of our super fans are. And it was great. It was great to meet them. And we did this live show where we got to meet them. Yes, and uh, because my bubble was a little bit burst beautifully, if I may add. Finished my last panel. I left a little bit later than you guys. And I'm making my way to the car to go to the airport. And all of a sudden, a gaggle, there's no better word, of like really kind of attractive young people smiling like really big smiles and looking super excited is like coming right at me. And I'm like, oh, on my on my fence. Oh, Were you at the live show oh, on Sunday oh, night? Hi. Did you really enjoy my jokes about the Holocaust at last night's event? Like I'm standing there all like, you know, smiling and felicitous. And then like in a really bad movie, they just walk right past who's me. Who's behind you? To Michael Aloni, the star of the beauty queen of <laughs> Jerusalem, who's standing literally right behind me. Like, oh my God, we love you in Shtisel. Like, Former oh, yeah. unorthodox guest. Yes, he did a panel there and that, it was a that, star-studded event. That tracks pretty well. So if half the world's Jews were in Chicago this past Sunday, the other half are gearing up for an election. And we have to go to our Eretz Yisrael correspondent, Liel Ben-Shimon Hasbani Leibowitz. I love, by the way, that you add names. Like my name, Liel, is not enough. No, <laughs> Give it's, away. Not, it's not enough. Big Jew here. <laughs> Take us to Israel. I understand there's a lot going on over there. What's what, Give me a minor story and then a truly major story from Israel. So it's it's 11.24 a.m. on a Tuesday as we record. Um, so we obviously don't know who won. By the time you listen to this, you probably also would not know who won because these are the fifth election in three and a half years. The report is that by now, more than 40% of Israelis have already voted, the highest rate since 1999, which bodes really well for about half the people in the country and really poorly for the other half. We'll know which half is happy later on today. But here's the thing that really kind of kept me thinking. I mean, the fact that this election happens literally the day after Halloween is so symbolic to me because I'm, I'm a huge horror movie fan. And horror movies, you know, even if you don't watch them, are notoriously dependent on endless, you know, repetitive sequels that are more or less just more of the same thing. And I think the Israeli election kind of really track very nicely with like a successful horror franchise. Uh, this is Israeli election five, Jerusalem syndrome. First of all, I should say that just like in horror movies that never have any real movie stars because they don't attract the major talent in that part of the industry, Israeli election, same thing. In the first one, they basically try to kill the monster, the legendary BB, the creature from Balfour Street. But... He comes back at the end with a vengeance. So they have to go to part two. And part two is Bride of BB. It's much more emotional uh, and, and has Sarah in it. And everyone is very upset about this. In the third installment, as is customary in the genre, uh, they basically kill off all the women in the minorities. And then by the fourth one, they decide, well, we need kind of the reboot the franchise. Let's let the unruly Randy teenagers actually kill off the bad guy. And that'll be the end of the story. But then they kind of do it and then no one's watching anymore. So they need to like revive the bad guy. And now they have part 
five, but the bad guy is kind of not that interesting anymore for a whole host of reasons. So they have to invent a new bad guy, which is how they come up with Itamar Ben-Gvir, because now we could be really, really, really afraid about some other, you know, huge threat to democracy. What I'm saying here is that unless you really like the genre, which, you know, a few freaks like me really do, I don't think you should be paying a lot of attention. I have to say, I did not realize BB was back in the game. I was surprised. <laughs> Maybe I should know this as a professional Jewish journalist. Yeah. And then I walked into Barnes & Noble recently, and then there was like a table just filled with a book called BB, My Story. Yes, yes, <laughs> so a book like, out. Why are you back? <laughs> it's, it's a cookbook. <laughs> so in a week when Matthew Perry and Ralph Macchio's memoirs both come out, and BB's does, do you think we could get the three of them on a panel about sort of the male memoir? I think it'd be such a great trivia game in which we just like pick one anecdote from one of these three books and you should see <laughs> who it applies to. Like, I almost had an affair with Julia Roberts. I'm going to go Wait, BB. who was that? That's, that's BB. It was Matthew that's, Perry. That's BB. Yeah. He so, was but Leo, to put the moves on. I have been led to understand that that actually isn't the most important story coming out of Israel this week. That, that, it that is there's not. been late breaking news of even greater import. There is an amazingly important story. So uh, I woke up this morning and as I always do, being completely addicted to outrage, like all of us, uh, I check the world's greatest repository of all things maddening, Twitter, and see a person, a very lovely woman named Dr. Jordan Bell. And all the tweets says, at Liel, if you're not actually responsible for the existence of this app, you definitely need to know about it. And then I kind of <laughs> click, of course, because this is very enticing. And I, <laughs> I can't even read this with a straight face. And uh, the news is this. A new Israeli app allows you to match with people to fight with, like Tinder, but for arguing. You swipe, you match and choose the topic you want to debate, and you go ahead and fight. Uh, this app has previously been called Sure, but now it's available in uh, electronic form. This is our our people at at their best. Can I say though, that's a little bit sad. It's you know again, there's no no harm in finding love online, and some of my favorite people have found love online. But if it replaces, if it's if you're going online because you don't see people anymore, then it's something to be sad about. Are Jews not encountering other Jews in public spaces and just finding things to argue about anyway? Do we have to, do we need computers to tell do us? Israelis the- need a prompt to argue with people. I feel like I got, I like tried to get gelato there and I got cut by like 16 different people who would have all been very ready to have an argument with me. Why Why you order the chocolate? Chocolate's very stupid. Order a more interesting flavor. What's wrong with you? I mean, let me be blunt. Are we, are we turning into Goyam? Are we turning into Lutherans from Iowa? I mean, what, what is going on here, people? Like, can you not just get in line at Barney Greengrass and start up a fight with someone? You know, look at, look at the you're charging for these latkes. They should be <laughs> I mean, for I free. Did I did it. Oh, thank goodness for Israeli ingenuity. Keeping Israelis Israeli. That startup nations that that you could you know try to find online. A good argument. I don't know. It's right, right up there. Our first guest was an interview we recorded live at the Jewish Federations of North America's General Assembly just a few nights ago in Chicago. We got the chance to talk to the president and CEO of Jewish Federations of North America, Eric Fingerhut, who is a fascinating person doing really, really, really cool work. Here is our interview with him. Eric, what a Jew it is! 
so, you know, we thought it'd be fun to bring up like a little known Obscure. Jewish professional yeah. who like you guys haven't heard of. Um, just, so just to give him a chance, you I'm know, just really gonna spotlight. Read, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to read his bio because I'm, I, this might be new to all of you. Um, our Jew of the week tonight is Eric Fingerhut. He was there. Yeah. He was a congressman from Ohio. Then he was CEO of, yes, of Hillel International. And now he is CEO of the Jewish Federations of North America. He lives in Washington with his wife, sons, and two beagles. And tonight, he is our Jewish guest. Welcome, Eric. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So have you ever been a Jew of the week? I have never been. This is the coolest <laughs> thing that's ever happened to me. We, we're very, and, very I, and I'm a huge fan, a huge listener. Oh, so I'm like you. really excited. Well, the other question was going to be, have you ever not been a CEO? Because literally the bio is like, <laughs> I imagine you at like eight being like, well, I'm, I'm going to run this, you know, softball <laughs> game, the recess that we have. I, I want to start big. I want to go kind of uh, thing. But we're here. Uh, we tell a lot of jokes. But we're very excited to be here uh, and very excited to be part of this amazing conference. So, so I want to start on a bit of a serious note and ask you, as you look at this plenary, as you look at all these people, as you look at the year ahead, what would you say are the top priorities that were facing us, the Jewish community, for this coming year? Well, I, I'm glad you prefaced it by saying it's a serious question because I, I regret that it's a serious answer. Um, so the top priority, likely by any standard, is the safety and security of the Jewish community, which really has two components to it. The first is just physical security. And as you've, I know you've covered on the, the show before, I mean, obviously this week was the fourth yurt site of those we lost in the Tree of Life Synagogue in, in Pittsburgh, October 27th, 2018. Since then, we've continued to see these violent attacks. And there is an organized effort led by the Jewish Federation of North America to ensure that every Jewish community in North America has a professional security program that is linked together under an umbrella we call the Secured Community Network, which does the training and the communications and all of that. And we've actually launched a national campaign. It's called Live Secure. Our friend Julie Platt, who was on the show, who's our board chair, chaired it. We raised $62 million, and we're in the business right now of building out in every community a professional security program that will include it under its umbrella, every synagogue, every JCC, et cetera. The problem with safety and security is that there's a second half to it, which is that we have this growing, rising anti-Semitism that is instigating violence. And so you can't possibly build enough security if you're not also dealing with this rising escalation of, of anti-Semitism. And that's actually, in, in some ways, a business we've been in forever, which is the business of community relations and government relations and building those deep relationships across all of our communities so that we can make sure that the civil society in which we live, I mean, let's look, this is the most successful Jewish diaspora in the history of the Jewish people, probably. Uh, maybe Babylonia is, uh, you know, you, you might uh, argue is a competitor, but- That's a good the, one, too. Yeah, it's a pretty good one. But the, uh, but the reason we've been successful here is because of the strength of the civil society in which we live. And so we have to be deeply engaged with that civil society. So that whole package of issues of security, of, physical security, anti-Semitism, deeply involved in civil society is number one. Uh, the second, also serious, though, I'd like to suggest that there's something we should be really celebrating, is that the war in Ukraine, launched by Russia, it's now really spreading, I think, the political unrest and, uh, and disturbance into Russia, uh, is, has caused you know, massive not only refugees, uh, but uh, humanitarian dislocation. You've seen the, the bombing. I mean, Russia is clearly trying to knock out the electricity and the heat and the infrastructure of Ukraine as we head into the winter in Ukraine. Here's the thing to celebrate, two things. One is that 
and you know, one of the concerns is that we, we're not used to things lasting for a long, crises lasting for a long time. We, so we had the six-day war. We had the, you know, the three-day Iraq war. We had the, you know, 24 hours this. 20, this is, this is going to last for a while. But the thing to celebrate is two things. First of all, this is the first time in history that when there's been a war in Europe, that every single Jew that needed to be rescued, needed refuge, received rescue and refuge, everyone who wanted to come to Israel came to Israel because of the organized Jewish community and the extraordinary philanthropy. This is really a historic <laughs> moment. The, se- the second thing that you should know is that this year, there have been more new Olim, more Aliyah to Israel than any year since the peak of the Soviet Jewry movement, you know, since the gates opened. And that's Russia's actually number one, Ukraine's number two. We have 3,000 coming from Ethiopia this year, a new decision by the government. And then the whole rest of the world together has made it an extraordinary, extraordinary year. So these are major projects for the Jewish world and our Jewish communities have been on the forefront of it. And then one last thing I'll say is that, of course, at home, you know, you've been, Mark, you've been joking about, you know, that the subject here is that, you know, do we change the name of the JCC to the J? It's a funny joke, but, 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 uh, but did but, we? Did but, we? Yeah, but uh, deadly, I don't know. It's actually I, deadly serious, Eric. It's, 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 right, right. I have very strong feelings I, I, about it. Well, we still, we, we said we have several more sessions on that topic yeah. before we, before we're done. <laughs> but, but actually, in all seriousness, the, the truth is that these communities, from Shreveport to the big communities that are here in New York and Chicago, where we are, you know, are in the business of building flourishing Jewish life, healthy, safe, caring, welcoming, and inclusive. This is the most diverse generation, you know, the Jewish people, educated and engaged, immersive experiences everywhere, involved in the broader society, connected to Israel and the global Jewish people. And that project has to be constantly maintained. We're still recovering from COVID. There's rising costs of everything in Jewish life because of inflation and because of security and because of all the other things. So keeping up, making sure that we can send all of our kids to Israel and all of our kids to camps and day schools and, and that our senior programs are caring for These are major projects, and that's, the, that's so, that would be the uh, So I have to interrupt you because yeah, this I'm is done, a Jewish I'm done. panel. Right. <laughs> and, I mean, we would not, you know, be Yotze unless And, and unless I want to interrupt this. you because I want to ask the next question. Right. No, but I have, I have one very, very quick world historical question to ask uh, about, about the term that you I'm just going to ask about beagles when it's my turn. Okay, so, you. You know, but you go ahead. As the bow tie suggests. Yep. Um, the question I have is I, I, I want to kind of get back to this term that you use, civil society, which I think is exactly right. But as Alana mentioned on the panel earlier, we, we kind of live in this strange time in which it seems like a lot of the, of the fundaments of civil society all over institutions that we thought we're rock solid, like journalism, like academia, like government, are sort of teetering, if not on the verge of collapse, at least on the verge of some major sea change. A, do you feel the same happening in the Jewish community? And B, if not, do you feel the Jewish community is, or our institutions are well prepared to deal with this kind of what really feels to a lot of us like uncharted territory? Yeah. Uh, look, I think we're better prepared to deal with it than probably some parts of American society. I mean, you mentioned in your nice intro of me, I served in Congress. I was a state legislator in Ohio. I ran the university, public university system in Ohio. So I've been involved in government for a long time. The reason I use civil society is, of course, it's not just government. It's business. It's, uh, it's other faith communities. It's labor unions. It's primary and secondary education. Obviously, college campuses, which we are obsessed about, rightly so, in the Jewish community. So these are as important parts of civil society in many respects as is government. Look, I think we are better prepared than some because we've always been deeply engaged. I mean, let's face it, the American Jewish community is overrepresented uh, in uh, the leadership of most of the sectors of civil society. 
both because we care and we're active and, and, and we, you know, we get involved. Look, I was a politician. I was, you know, I grew up in the Jewish community in Cleveland and something inspired me to want to be in, you know, wanted to be in, in government and politics. And I think what inspired me was I looked at the leaders of the community and they were, they were deeply engaged. But we also have known that we need to be involved. So there's always been a community relations committee, you know, at every federation and there's a government relations committee. And there's, I think we have something like 250 professionals who work in this field across all the federations and thousands. So we're, we're better prepared than others, but I would, I would say that it's a dislocating moment. It's very challenging. The polarization has hit our community, the getting out of practice of talking to people about whom you disagree, realizing, like we've always had Jewish leaders in Republican, every Republican administration, every Democratic administration has had Republican leaders. And yet somehow all of a sudden that's viewed as not right by the other side. And, and so it's challenging, but I think, I think we'll be able to handle it and we have experience at it, but we better, you know, we better polish our boots or something. I don't know, whatever the right metaphor so, is. Okay. Boots look great. Let's, let's go lighter. What is the most fun thing about your job? <laughs> uh, the most fun thing is that I, not fun is the right word, but I've never felt more productive and satisfied professionally in my life because there's not a single, there's not a single day that we wake up that there's not something that we think we can do that is meaningful, you know, to the community and the world. And then I get to work with these incredible people. I mean, you think about, like, I, I know you know about the community response to Ukraine, and I mentioned the community response to security. The fact that we can mobilize in hours, thousands of people across hundreds of communities who will drop everything and go fly to the Ukrainian-Polish border. We took five groups in like a month after the war broke out. We'll just fly over there to see it for themselves, to come back, tell their communities, and then go to six committee meetings, you know, to say we have to allocate money to this project. It's just unbelievable. I mean, it's really, there's nothing like it. And I don't know if, if you want to call it, I, I find that so inspiring. I want to say that um, when I was writing about the tragedy in Pittsburgh, the fact that there was a federation on the ground made it possible for people around the world to feel part of the response and yeah. to feel useful. So I, yeah. I, I've well, seen well, that. Thank you for that. And, and we have people from the Pittsburgh Federation here I in the know. audience, Jeff Finkelstein, Merrill Ainsman, and others. So I, look, the Federation is the kind of thing that when there's nothing sort of urgent to the community going on, it's easy to say, oh, you know, we don't need it. What are they doing? That annual campaign, here it comes time again. And then people remember, this is why we have well, a communal organization that are, actually can mobilize us all to address, you know, communal challenges. And they're exceptionally good looking, too. I mean, <laughs> well-cut suits. I mean, they're, you know, six foot tall. Um, but the most, no, I thought the thing you were going to say, the most fun is that you are now, you've joined the community of Jewcasters. You have a podcast. <laughs> That's true. And that is I, true. I, we are not going going to let you get off the stage without shamelessly promoting because you know frankly when we started unorthodox seven years ago we thought there'd be you know a rush of other people into the podcast space and there have been some very very good ones but fewer than you would think so we want to welcome you to the podcasting world and i want you to tell us about your podcast tell, tell everyone what it's called as it a great title the glue the glue i want to talk about on the podcast and talk to people who are involved in doing those things that bring us together the glue what what actually holds us together even when we have these vast disagreements about political figures and about events in the world. So that's what the glue's about. You know, find it on, what do you say? Find it on Spotify, whatever. And, and uh, Whatever platform right. you choose. Whatever platform you choose. Wherever on, you listen to podcasts. Right, the glue, yeah. the trailer's out. The show drops around Thanksgiving. It does. Eric Fingerhut, we, you know, you have a lot of accolades. You have an amazing career. We are going to give you this official unorthodox certificate of appreciation for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you so much for having us, Thank for being here. It's been Thank a real you for treat. Having me. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. 
box. Got a letter in the mailbox. Got a letter in the mailbox. Mailbox. To the mailbox. A couple of really sweet letters to begin with. Uh, first off, a note from Akaria. He writes, going into episode 335, I didn't want to hear anything about Kanye. I thought that Josh, in the intro to the prior episode, telling Kanye to go fuck himself was necessary but sufficient. So when Kanye came up on Ep 335, I was ready to be annoyed. But your discussion was so interesting, so multifaceted, that I really appreciated the segment. And that's one of the things I love about Unorthodox, the varying viewpoints, opinions, and analysis. Keep up the great work. But since you discussed Kanye so brilliantly already, you don't need to do it again. Yours, Akaria. Well, thank you, Akaria. And by the way, I edited his letter way down. He had nice things to say about each of the three of us and the perspective we brought to the Kanye's conversation. So it's nice to get, a, you know, not all of our email is so positive. So that was and, nice. And, and I love both the name and also the contributions uh, and the mailbox and on the Facebook group. Thank you, Akaria. Absolutely. Uh, now this email is is a also, a, I would say a, a positive one in that it's affectionate and it's a gentle chiding of me. Dear Mark, I had to pause this week's episode during your announcement when you said that you would be hooking up with your colleagues in Chicago. I don't think that phrase means what you think it means. <laughs> In a platonic relationship, you meet up. In a non-platonic relationship, you still meet up because no one needs to know what you're doing together alone. Sincerely yours, Carol Teitelbaum Deerdorf, San Antonio, Texas. Oh well, Carol, two things. Number one, your your full, your your trinomial Carol Teitelbaum Deerdorf is unimprovably Jewish, unimprovably Texas, unimprovably all that. And um, it it must be a treat to go through life named that. I envy you as just Mark Edward. But second of all, as a college graduate of the mid-90s, the era that I think coined hooking up to mean what you think it always means, I am well aware that it can be used that way, but I thought that it could still be salvaged in its old form of just to, you know, hook up with someone by phone, by in person, just, you know, to hang. Um, apparently in your mind, it just all goes to one place. But I, you know, I don't just, I don't think it has to go there. I don't, Liel, What Stephanie, you're telling Carol Tidelbaum and Deerdorf is, in your dirty, dirty mind, yeah. ma'am. <laughs> Liel, the next letter is a, a, a third vote for the piyut, the Yom Kippur hymn, El Nora Alila, that, that you and I that El you and I both Nora appreciate. Alila. Would you read it for us? I was so touched to hear Mark mention El Nora Alila that I'm breaking down to write this. I go to a small shul, a shtibo, really. Those are the absolute best in Toronto. We managed to get a minion every Shabbat, but just barely. But in Yom Kippur, we have a sizable turnout. I used to be exhausted and burnt out by Neila until several years ago, our chazan, who is Sephardic, although we daven Ashkenazi, introduced this wonderful piyut. Our chazan has taken to inviting me and another congregant, who is Moroccan, to the bima to sing El Nora Alila with him. I do so enthusiastically, but I feel a little guilty about it. Am I committing cultural appropriation, standing up there with two authentic Sephardim? The Ashkenazi Machzor I use, the Koran, of course, doesn't even have El Nora Alila in it. This Yom Kippur, when I went back to my seat, one of the congregants looked at me quizzically and said, I didn't know you were, I interrupted her and said, no, only an honorary one. <laughs> and for this pute only. I can't wait for next Yom Kippur and another chance to belt it out. Jerry Titel. Jerry, this is, first of all, what an amazing email. I am so Happy for you for what sounds like an amazing shtibel and for bringing this wonderful pew, this wonderful little uh, song into your high holiday spirit. But look, this business of cultural appropriation, it's nonsensical under, under the best circumstances. 
But under these circumstances, if you look at the history of so many of these prayers and the history of the Jewish people, we traveled again and again and again from Babylon to Eretz Israel, from here to there, and the songs and the traditions and the prayers traveled with us. That is exactly the point of being Jewish. It's to, to defy and reject all this nonsensical thought of putting people in boxes and thinking in terms of races and distinct cultures. We are all one. A Sephardic piyut is your piyut. It's Taitel and Leibowitz's piyut, just as a Ashkenazi piyut belongs to the Mugrabis and Al-Grablis of this world. This is our tradition, and it's so rich and eternal precisely because it is both timeless and timely, precisely because we could borrow from one another and inspire one another and have the same outline while developing our own little turns and, 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 and enriching each other. I would also point out, I mean, it's, it's nice of you to be concerned. I think that's noble. But I don't think in the history of all this, anyone's complained about it. I mean, first of all, this pute is in the Machzor Lev Shalem, which is, I don't know, you'd say it's Ashkenazi, but it's basically the Ashkenazi rite. But they've imported it, and they say, and this, you know, derives from Sephardi lands, and it's there. I've never heard a Sephardi or Mizrahi Jew complain about a tradition most recently from their lands being brought in. In fact, B'nai Jeshurun on the Upper West Side is an almost entirely Ashkenazi congregation that that uses numerous Sephardi melodies and melodies from non-Ashkenazi lands. It, no, I'm a thousand percent with Liel, and I would be curious if there's anyone here who thinks there's any concern, but it seems to me that Jews are kind of modeling how we borrow and reinfuse each other's communities. It's one thing to say, like, you know, I'm going to eat kidney oat as an Ashkenazi person. I was just about to say, the only <laughs> thing you're not allowed to culturally appropriate on is Passover. Because the Sephardian really figured that one out. I think that's that's <laughs> <laughs> that's a fight we'll save for Passover. Stephanie, a little love for you in the next letter. Um, I love this note. It says, every time Stephanie talks about seeing the holidays through Edith's eyes, I think of my personal experience. I'm currently attempting to navigate the process of converting to Judaism when the nearest synagogue is 90 minutes from my house and only has a rabbi once a month. Long story short, I took off work for the big Rosh Hashanah service and again for the big Yom Kippur service. The service leader made sure to chat with me on both days since she knows I am trying to convert. On Yom Kippur, she asked me what I thought and I said I loved the service. She said, really? She sounded genuinely surprised, like people don't normally enjoy high holidays so much as put up with them. But I love attending religious services, and my first high holidays were one of my favorites. It literally was a wonderful experience. In unrelated news, but something else I keep threatening to tell y'all about, my friends and I play RPGs or role-playing games once a week, and one of our players' characters cultivated a garden of sapient mushrooms to be his minions. A dice roll revealed there are 10 mushrooms total, and thus we realize that he has a mushroom minion minion. Thanks for reading. Have a good shop. It's Molly Srogas. I don't understand anything about that last paragraph, okay, but I love so, all of it. So Molly Srogas, I understand everything about this last paragraph, being a giant nerd, uh, and, I, and I very much appreciate the anecdote. I'm going to say something else too. Look, uh, we're no rabbis, not by a long shot, but we are, according to Hashem and iTunes, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. And so I say this to you, if you would like to chat, ask questions, suggestions, recommendations, we're always here for you. And I'm really serious. You know our email address. Uh, we would love to chat in person in a, in a form of your choice. Hit us up. We're here. And then you're going to try to play D&D with her, aren't you, Leo? That's how we're going to finish this <laughs> conversion course. It will basically be a role-playing game where I play the role of a rabbi <laughs> very poorly. Uh, and then we'll learn together in the Chavruta. And finally, hello, Stephanie, Mark, and Liel. Just wanted to pass along some of my four-year-old's Yiddish expressions. My daughter likes to call her baby brother, Kenji, Kensh the Mensch. 
And today she came up with my favorite new word, menschkin. Aw. Best Brittany Lowe. Uh, J. Crew, let us take the term menschkin far and wide for the little mensch in your life. That is utter genius. That, that deserves a Genesis Prize, a MacArthur Genius Grant, possibly a Nobel, all of it. Give them all of it. Uh, listeners, please write to us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com and call us 914-570-4869. But before we leave the mailbox behind entirely, Let's hear a little bit of El Nora Alila, this, this piyut, this hymn that Liel and I are so enraptured by. We asked Alana Sandberg to sing a bit of it for us. Alana Sandberg is a rabbinical student at Jewish Theological Seminary and, and as you'll see on YouTube, someone with serious cantorial chops. El Nora Alila, El Nora Alila, Hansila nu mechila, Beshaata neila, Metemi sparkeruin, Lechain osim, Umsaldim bechila, Beshaata neila, El Nora Alila, El Nora Alila. We are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. So, J. Crew, we woke up just this morning to really, really heartbreaking news. The rapper Takeoff from the group Migos was shot and murdered in Houston last night. Uh, he was only 28 years old when he died. And it's very, very sad to me as a fan of their music, but also makes the Gentile of the Week this week feel particularly timely. He's Joe Cascarelli, uh, and he reports on culture for the New York Times with a focus on music. He joined Stephanie and myself to talk about his new book, Rap Capital and Atlanta Story, which explores not only Migos, but also how Atlanta rap became the most consequential musical ecosystem of the century so far. It's an amazing, amazing book, and of course, there are Jews playing wild and wacky roles in it. It's a great read, even if you're not a huge hip-hop fan. Here's our interview with Joe Cascarelli. We are recording this interview two, three days after a deeply traumatic occurrence in my life, which is the almost unfathomable loss of my beloved New York Mets, not once, not twice, but three times to the execrable, cursed Atlanta Braves. I have to tell you, I love this book so much because it made me, 
I wouldn't say like, but think differently about a town that for obvious baseball reasons, to me is is purgatory. It's the worst place in America. Atlanta is, is where my October dreams go to die. So tell us about the setting, about the city, and about what brought you to this amazing story. I mean, the first thing I'll say is that the Braves no longer play in Atlanta. They moved the stadium into the suburbs, and it's much worse than it used to be. So, correct. you know, I think people like to claim the Braves in Atlanta when they're winning, but they are not part of the sort of heart and soul of, of that town, especially in the world that I was covering, the modern-day rap world. I think, you know, Falcons stink. So they're hard to claim, and, and the Hawks haven't been cool since the 80s. So it's weirdly, outside of college, not a sports town. Um, I am the Times music reporter. I started in late 2014, and so naturally, you know, as streaming was taking off, Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, you know, changed the record business, rescued it from post-Napster. It seemed like, you know, nobody would ever buy music again or pay for music again. And that was beginning to change as I got my job. And a lot of what was driving early streaming was rap music and specifically Southern rap music. So I found myself doing a lot of stories down there. So to the uninitiated, let's let's slow things down. Describe, if you will, uh, this category, Southern rap, and, and maybe even more specifically trap, which is the genre that maybe Atlanta's best kind of associated with. Take us on a, on a historical musical journey and how these genres came to be. So for many decades, New York was considered the arbiter of authenticity for hip hop, right? This is the birthplace of rap at the, the rise of LA in the late 80s, early 90s, and the New York LA rivalry, most well known through Biggie and Tupac. But those have traditionally been strongholds of what is seen as old school, lyrical, gritty, true rap music. And through the 90s, especially, you had the rise of, of a third city, right, of Atlanta, of Southern rap. And I think for a long time, it was considered tacky. It was considered dumbed down. It was a different style. It was considered less lyrical, less intricate, less based on storytelling, bigger beats, dances. I think when you think of the American bias against the South, in general, right? A lot of that applies to the music, right? It's too country. You can't understand what they're saying. You know, they're they're vulgar in some way that the North is not. But through acts like Outcast, those sort of biases started to fall. And I think the chip on the shoulder of Atlanta, especially, really made it a place where the artists were fighting for acceptance. And as you go into the early 2000s, you have the rise of, as you mentioned, trap music, right? Which comes from the idea of the trap house, which is a place for the production and sale of drugs. South is very, very spread out. We're not talking city blocks here um, in Atlanta. There's a lot of empty space and, you know, subterranean business sort of sprung up in these neglected neighborhoods. And music, trap music is, you know, a sort of, artistic rendering of this world, which, again, revolves around sort of the, the production and sale. Of drugs. This is such an unfair question, but you could you could you could handle it. Describe that style. Describe the sound. Uh, you know, I, I mean, there are people in the book who describe it as the sound of crack cooking on the stove. <laughs> so this is like this is big bass heavy music. It's often very ornate. There's a lot of keyboard-based sounds. You know, you think of early producers who are crucial in 
forging the traps down, someone like Zaytoven, who's a you know church pianist, who then started making beats on keyboards for Southern rappers. There's, there's often a lot of space. They're a little bit slow, brooding. And then there's the more upbeat, sort of danceable, you know, stuff that, that takes over in the strip club. And it's, it's a lot of push and pull between pain and joy, darkness and light. And the lyrics and the beats don't always match, but there's a real interplay there. So to an old curmudgeon asshole like me, who is fairly obsessive with rap, but believes that, I don't know, probably Wu-Tang was, was the last incarnation of, of real genius and who listens to Migos and these other acts out of Atlanta and just feels like this is, whereas I actually do enjoy it, it, even contemporary country music to say nothing of classical country music, it just sounds really kind of crass, commercial, stupid, vulgar is the word used that I like. I'm thankfully in the minority now, right? You're saying this opinion is changing. It is. And I think there's, you know, there's a vast array of options, right? If you want an artist that is more lyrical, if you want an artist that is more experimental, these exist, right? Within, within this scene, someone like Lil Baby, who's a, you know, big character in the book, He's often sort of derided, I think, because sometimes he uses auto-tune, right? We can, we can talk about auto-tune, but that's a, a pitch-correcting software, essentially, that uh, has since become an aesthetic choice in music instead of fixing fixing your notes. Um, but he'll rap through auto-tune. He has this thick accent, you know, sort of marble mouth. Uh, especially to a northern ear, and you would think uh, this guy's not saying anything. But if if you if you invest in the music and you listen a little closer, you know you're exposed to basically this whole universe of characters and sounds and places. And I think there is a lot of very vibrant imagery in, in the writing. At the same time, you know, there's somebody like Young Thug, who you know he's he's basically Prince uh, of the rap world, right? He's completely enigmatic. I didn't even speak to him for the book because why bother? Right. You know, he's not hes not here to be to, to be interviewed. He has this crazy sort of helium hive squeak of a voice. But he's also like the, the way he writes, it's quite experimental, it's quite avant-garde. And these guys are just like changing the way that popular music sounds every couple of years. So speaking of characters, I've, I've wanted you to be unorthodox for many years, Joe, your friend. And you wrote a piece for The Times about one character who ends up being in this book, which is this this lawyer, the billion dollar lawyer, Drew Findling. Yes. Tell us <laughs> tell us about the Jewish lawyer uh, at the heart of so much of this of this scene in, in such a strange way. So Drew ended up being a big character in the book. It's been a source now for, for many years. I profiled him in 2017, I think. And I first learned about him in the autobiography of Gucci Mane, who wrote a book after getting out of prison. As I was reading this book, there's this character, Drew Finling, who, who was basically credited with helping end Gucci Mane's sort of downward spiral of, you know, drugs and paranoia uh, and illegal activity. He got him this crazy plea deal. Eventually, he got his sentence shortened, got him out of jail. Uh, and there was very little uh, in the book about him, but I knew he was going to be a fascinating character. So I got in touch with him. He works very closely with the label at the heart of this book, Quality Control, uh, which was founded in, in 2013, uh, known for artists like Migos and Lil Baby, Lil Yachty. And Drew was just this completely fascinating guy, you know, Jewish man from Long Island. He was in his late 50s when I met him. 
he wasn't from the South, but he moved there for college and sort of fell in love with the place, raised his family there. And he sort of fell backwards into being like a hip hop folk hero. Uh, and this, this began in the, in the early 2000s when he defended not even a rapper, but a, a sort of someone who's huge in rap lore by the name of Big Meech, uh, Demetrius Flannery. He was one of the, the kingpins of the Detroit cocaine syndicate called BMF, Black Mafia Family. Um, and he had moved to Atlanta to sort of expand the operation and get into rap music potentially as a sort of, you know, both a mythology building thing and also maybe for some for some money laundering purposes. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, w- one night there's a shootout in the parking lot of a club. Two people are killed, including a uh, bodyguard of Puff Daddies who had also moved to Atlanta, uh, trying to trying to make a name for himself as, as a rap promoter, um, a guy by the name of by the nickname of Wolf. And all of a sudden, through word of mouth, this guy ends up in Drew Finling's office and he, he has to defend the case. And the way he tells it, he just really, you know, there was a couple hearings and he just tore apart, you know, the anonymous witness accounts. You know, Demetrius Flannery had been shot himself in this shootout. They had, you know, nobody, nobody really tying him to the crime. And the case ended up unindicted, right? So he, he never even got charged. And from there, Drew just develops this reputation as a sort of, you know, fearsome fighter for, for justice of these guys who are, you know, on the edge between the entertainment world uh, and the sort of subterranean world that, that often gave it its, both its capital, its credibility. This guy is fascinating to me because on the one hand, he's he's really helping these guys who are, you know, like the justice system is deeply problematic. And these people are, you know, part of a population that is being in many ways, unfairly treated. And so it's a great Richard Pryor joke, right? They call it a justice system because it's just us. But on the other side, he's sort of part of this weird thing with like the Jewish lawyer in rap. Like there's a weird way in which Jews and in the music industry more broadly, like there is this almost like nefarious side. And he... A skinny Israeli is running this rap shit. Oh, I mean, that it's, this goes way back. Like it goes, I think it starts with executives even even more than lawyers, right? When you think of Rick Rubin starting Def Jam in his NYU dorm room, you know, Bill Adler who was a big figure in early hip hop marketing. Lear Cohen also came out of that world, you know, is Israeli American. And even prior to rap, right? You think of, of chess records, or, or you think of Mo Austin or, you know, the, the, the Jewish executive, you know, and that, and this comes out of, I don't have to tell you guys, like, you know, the music industry was as segregated as anything else, right? Race records were in one category, black music, and nobody would touch them. The major, the corporations weren't going to touch them. And you have, you know, Jewish executives and, and lawyers and talent scouts and ARs sort of swoop in as people who were also not allowed in those clubs at the time. And they forge they forge a partnership, right? When you jazz, blues, rock and roll, rap, like there's often sort of, you know, Jewish executives and, and black artists going hand in hand. And, you know, where there are executives and, and contracts, there are, there are also lawyers. And accountants. Um, and where there are lawyers and accountants, there are Jews. There are Jews. It's, it's this classic thing, right, where it goes back and forth between adoration and sort of Jewish lawyer or Jewish accountant as status symbol, right? As a sign of, as a sign of respect. And also then there's the stereotypes and the sort of, you know, anti-Semitic imagery and, and this idea of being scammed by the, the Jews in your corner, maybe, you know, someone like Jerry Heller from the NWA days, right? He, he had a notorious reputation. Then you get you know, Vaseline, you know, famous 
quite anti-Semitic diss record about the breakup of the NWA situation. So I think, you know, the the Jewish man usually in, in hip hop, it has a casts a long shadow, right? Um, and it's really back and forth about whose side they're seen as being on by the rappers. Um, but someone like Drew, who gets really close with these guys, you know, I think they see him, they see him as a mentor, right? They see him as as something to aspire to, the way he handles uh, his business sort of in and outside the courtroom. Um, so there is just a real kinship there, right? Like a cultural affinity that I think goes both ways. So the book is so wonderful in large part because it, it contains all these incredible anecdotes and like thumbnail portraits of these unbelievably interesting, fascinating, complex artists and and really a great sense of, of the scene. So I don't want to do it too much injustice by trying to kind of like peg it into a, well, this is what the book is about. But I do wonder what your state of mind slash emotional wherewithal is when you're reporting it. Because, you know, here you are, you're a music writer for the New York Times, and you're now immersing yourself in a world that is so incredibly kind of vibrant. It seemed very self-contained, uh, very kind of, you know, airtight. What is it like writing this book? What is it like really being in this world for as long as you have? I think that the artists at the center of it, artists, executives, you know, the, the people around them, they know that what they're doing is important and influential, but it's not often treated as such, right? There's not a lot of books, right? Rap music, in pretty inarguably the biggest music in the world over the last 10 plus years, probably longer. Uh, and the amount of sort of, you know, historically minded, you know, in-depth journalism about it is like, you know, almost none, right? There's so few serious behind the scenes looks at this stuff. So I think they all really respected, you know, that I that I wanted to preserve this moment. You know, it's a it's a recent history, right? And so I think they saw off the bat my investment um, and and my sort of engagement uh, with the work they were doing. And the other thing was I was catching a lot of people at the beginning of their careers, right? The whole point of the book to me was not not to talk about the most famous or the most influential people, but to talk about people whose, whose lives are representative and whose lives I could see up close as they tried to make it, right? So all I've ever wanted to do is like a hoop dreams, you know what I mean? Right. Like find somebody at the beginning of their journey uh, and, and be alongside them as they try to figure it out. And whether that ends in, you know, at the top of the charts, which in some cases it does, or whether that ends, you know, back back where they started from or, or worse. Like to me, that was always going to be a compelling story and it was always going to be representative of what happens in Atlanta every day, every week, every year. So I think, you know, being able to find the right people at the start of a saga and showing them that I was going to be there, whether or not it was going well or not, that I think, you know, breeds a lot of loyalty and trust. This is such a huge bet though, right? Because you're not just saying, well, I want these great characters to make the book interesting. You're also saying, hey, I'm, I'm the music guy. I'm I supposed to know about this shit. And the people I pick are really kind of a judgment on my own taste, insight, understanding. Were there moments in which you're like, I, I just don't know, would it be a little baby or someone else? Or how did the uh, auditioning process go about? I mean, I got pretty lucky, right? Like the 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 Sort of the people I see as the three main artist characters, which, you know, sort of starts from the second part of the book after after setting the historical scene, 
you know, little baby, uh, a rapper by the name of Lil Reek and another guy named Marla. Like they were, they were the three that I saw at the outset as really representing something. Lil Baby, I met, you know, not long after he got out of prison. Uh, I wrote about his label. I wrote about him and I just saw how quickly he was growing, right? I saw his talent uh, really jumping between, you know, he put out, I think, five mixtapes in 10 months or something <laughs> insane like that. Uh, and, and every one was, was noticeably better. And also, I had gotten to know him a little bit. I, I knew what kind of talker he was behind sort of shy exterior. Uh, and I'm pretty confident in my bets, right? Like, that's a, a lot of what I do in my day job is, is to spot someone and say, like, what is this person going to be in six months or in 12 months or in 18 months? So I'm okay at that in general. But, you know, I just, I, I felt like these guys, they really were in situations that were like I said, representative, right? So someone like Lil Reek, like, you know, maybe he was never going to be a celebrity, but he was, you know, graduating high school. He, the first time I, you know, I invited him to the New York Times to meet me after I saw one of his videos online. He was in New York for a couple of meetings and he said, you know, I'm graduating high school in two weeks. You should come. And I was like, I'll be there, you know? So like, and I just knew that he, he is the, the teenager that, you know, like, Seattle in the 90s when Nirvana blows up, right? right. And all the labels swoop in mm -hmm. and sign every band that's a little bit like Nirvana. I, I knew that this was happening to kids mm -hmm. like him all over the city. And the fact that he, he, he was so excited by the fact that I was excited by him that we could sort of form, form that, that bond. So something I love about this book and all of your work in general is that, you know, this is a book for someone who is not necessarily into rap, into Atlanta rap, into music. You're actually telling a real cultural story and it's a story about America and it's a story about striving and achieving and all of that stuff and like sort of a window into like the American dream today. You do that a lot in your profiles for The Times. You also do that with some of the other stuff you do. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners who might not know about Diary of a Song and sort of the, the video feature that you do as well. Yeah, so Diary of a Song started almost five years ago at this point. Um, and the idea was really to to pull back the curtain on how hits are made um, and, and marketed and how they, they work their way around the world. So, you know, the, the first song we ever did in this format was The Middle uh, by a DJ called Zed and sung by country singer Marin Morris. This, you know, pop song with like a dozen writers on it, took a year to make. And I know that people often will see a song like that and they'll scoff at it, right? They'll say, oh, Lennon and McCartney, they were the only names on their songs, right? And I wanted to, I wanted to say like, okay, but this is how the music most people are hearing is created. Surely there's some value there, right? There's some process that is at least interesting, right? Even if you're, if you're not familiar with it or you don't respect it. And so I, sp I speak to everybody involved in, in the making of a song. It's usually done on FaceTime, both for ease and because to me, the, you know, the process of songwriting today is so native to phone. So much of it is happening remotely. It's happening from people who don't even know each other. Or they met on Twitter. Or they met on Instagram. So we sort of created this visual language where the whole thing is happening on FaceTime or, or on an iPhone, right? And that's also how people are watching these videos on YouTube. And we just follow the journey of a song from its core idea. Originally, it was, it was based around voice notes, voice memos, you know, because every time I would interview an artist, they would say, oh, this song started when I was in the shower and that melody hit me and I hummed it into my, you know, my, my voice notes. And so the idea was to take a song from voice note to the radio or to the top of the charts, right? And, and track everything along the way. But that's the story I just want to tell in general when I cover music is, you know, not only the star, but the guy behind the guy, right? The manager, the, the anonymous songwriter you've never heard of. Doing this kind of work, does it 
fuck with your ability to just listen. In other words, when you hear a song now, do you think like, oh, wow, I hear the beat and what they did there and this track and this production. Like, did, did it ruin it for you? Did it ruin music? Of course. I mean, like, it's so hard to listen to music that you've written about. You know, I think, you know, I'm sure you can relate. Like, uh, it, it becomes academic in some way. It becomes, you know, you're looking at it a bit more scientifically. Uh, or it's just like triggers you to think about the stress. <laughs> like your looming deadlines. But the other thing I would say is like, I was always that guy being like, oh, well, this beat's ripping off this other beat or this producer is just a bad version of that producer, right? Like you always feel like you're seen through something or, or behind the curtain, then it's it's better to be paid for. So it. leave us kindly with top three. If people want to have something to listen to as they read, as some people like to do as they read Rap Capital, three artists that maybe are in the book, maybe are not in the book, who you think are listeners who know nothing about this world ought to know. So I think everything begins in modern Atlanta with Andre 3000, right? Of Outcast. Um, big boy, his, his partner in the duo, great also. But to me, Andre is, he's the true king of this world. He really set the parameters, which were, were boundless, I think, both in fashion, style, lyrically, musically. People know Hey Ya, but, but Outcast is, is, is much deeper than Hey Ya. So I think everything starts there. In the middle, you have Young Jeezy, who was really big for the, the sort of national explosion of, of trap music. He was known as a street hustler. He didn't want to be musical. He has this crazy baritone of a voice. Um, he raps really slowly. It's really funny, but also just clever. And, and the, the mythology of him was huge. And then I've, I've mentioned him in this conversation, but I think Lil Baby is really, he's sort of the prince of, of the new school, right? He's gone from you know being in jail never having rapped in his life to you know top of the charts he's doing the theme song for the world cup this year he's a documentary about him on amazon he's really in the sort of jay-z entrepreneurial he's going all the way right he's he's both recognized as as a true and authentic artist in the streets of atlanta where he grew up um, but then also has infiltrated that sort of boardrooms of corporate America in a way that I find very fascinating. I do have one final, final question, because our listeners who are enjoying hearing you can hear more of you on Popcast, the New York Times music podcast. And I love listening to Popcast because I also find out about artists I have never heard of before, um, but probably should know about. But you were on the record on that show as being a Taylor Swift appreciator. Yes. Which is, you know, what what, what we all share here in this room. Is a, is a kind and I was word. I was giving it like a journalistic <laughs> detached spin. But like, give us some like underappreciated Taylor Swift song. Forget Atlanta rap. We're, we're really here to talk Taylor. Taylor is putting out an album the week that I'm putting out this book. The week of October 18th, her new album comes out the 21st. Felt very fitting. <laughs> I'll do, I will tell a quick story, which is I ran into Taylor while I was reporting this book at a, at a, I went to one of her shows, said hello to her briefly. I don't think I've even told this story on podcast, so you're getting a little wow. exclusive. Um, and she said, Joe, what are you doing here? Even though we never met in person, you know, uh, and I said, I'm working on this book about Atlanta. She was like, oh, one time I went to the studio with Future here. And it was so amazing, like, to watch him work. So Taylor Taylor has an appreciation uh, for, for Atlanta rap, too. I've been thinking underappreciated Taylor about, do you remember Lover? Of course. Her pre-pandemic sort of semi-flop album uh, never really took off. I think Cruel Summer should have been so single, yeah. right? Uh, instead, instead, you started with Me, um, which is maybe the worst song uh, for, was offensive. for her career uh, and the opening single to Lover. So I think Cruel Summer really never got it too, but there's also the song on that album that I've been thinking about a lot uh, called The Archer. She's been The Archer. She's been The Prey. Exactly. Uh, and it, it, I feel like it's sort of 
presaged where she was going to go with folklore a little bit. It was like a, a bit more experimental between her, her and Jackie Antonoff. And I think, you know, I have an edit of Lover uh, where I cut, cut away maybe half the checklist. And I think it's a very strong album. Uh, if only I had been the executive behind it. Only you had been in the room. Um, Joe Coscarelli, it has been so fun talking to you. The book is Rap Capital and Atlanta Story. Our listeners will love it and can listen to you on podcast, can read you at the New York Times. Where should we be following you? Uh, everywhere. Joe Coscarelli, <laughs> just my name. Um, I'm all around. Backstage at a Taylor concert. I'll see you there with future. <laughs> Joe, thank you. This week, a second JOTW, a second Jew of the Week. The writer Rosalind Bernstein sat down with Talbot executive editor Wayne Hoffman to talk about her new book, The Girl Who Counted Numbers. It's a historical novel set in Jerusalem during the 1961 Adolf Eichmann trial. Have a listen. Ros Bernstein, Rosalind. I've had the pleasure of knowing you for many, many years by now. You sold me my first car. <laughs> That's how long we've known each other. And we're still friends. And we're still friends. It was a good car. But knowing you as a writer for so many years, even long before you were a contributor to Tablet, means that I've had the pleasure of knowing your work for many years as well. But I also had the distinct pleasure of reading an early version of your new book, The Girl Who Counted Numbers, which is now due out in October from Amsterdam Publishers, so I'm very happy to be here with you talking about The Girl Who Counted Numbers, your debut novel, so Mazel Tov. Today, you are a novelist. Ah, finally. So the first thing I want to get into is that the book is fiction. Obviously, it's a novel. Yeah. But the backdrop of the book is very, very real. The backdrop, it takes place in 1961 in Israel during the Eichmann trial. The trial itself is happening but also the Israeli public is sort of electrified and being mesmerized by the ongoing trial on a day-by-day basis. Now, you spent seven months in Jerusalem in 1961 when this was actually happening. What do you personally remember about the trial and how the public responded from when you were there? Well, actually, I arrived in Haifa and then in Jerusalem just after the trial was over. However, the place was still electric that year. The trial, everyone was talking about it. Um, there was very poor television. Only America, we saw it, but there they mostly listened on the radio and loudspeakers giving the daily news, daily reports. I arrived knowing Hebrew, which was an advantage. So when I heard these loudspeakers giving the reports, the Eichmann trial, unlike the Nuremberg trial, the Eichmann trial was real people testifying exactly what happened to them. And it was full of tears. So um, I came there on a, on a fellowship from Brandeis, and I was based in Rehavia. And what makes the book real is that I lived in Israel seven months during that, what I'll call, I'll call it the Eichmann year, because that's what it really was. 
So, you know, we've had a lot of trials in this country that seem like they're the trial that's riveted the public. If we look at the O.J. Simpson trial or even more recently this year, the Johnny Depp trial, those are very different experiences than the Eichmann trial in Israel, where it was, as you said, people weren't so much at home watching individually. They were often in public gatherings, watching on closed circuit television in groups with strangers. What difference does that make in terms of how Israeli society responded as a whole? It's a really good question, Wayne, because it made a huge difference. My group was put up in a rather elegant pension. And I mentioned this because they were German Jews or as they are known in that time, Yekis. They had money. They had gotten out of Germany with their piano and jewels and money, and they set up this pension. And our group lived across the street in an apartment they owned as well. In fact, in the pension of Barbonell were reporters from the trial. So what was the difference about it was this. If you experience pain, it's your own pain. But if you are surrounded by pain, If you are, at the moment you are feeling your pain, absorbing someone else's stories, and the stories tumbled out, you know, one one session wasn't just one person. It was uh, two women who had experiments on them, people who were burned with lie, everything you could think of. And that's a theme in the book, counted, counting. Counting is very important. I have to take just a tiny aside to say that I'll never know why. But from my childhood on, when I walked in the city, I would count the lines in the sidewalk. I had this counting thing. I was counting. I was figuring things out. What was the substance of something? How much did it mean? And that was the essence of the... You couldn't see it in the privacy of your home, grab a tissue or a Kleenex or whatever there was in those days. You were suffering. You were a klal, a group, together. fantastic difference. And the other thing was to hear it in the streets, to hear it on the radio. And the radio always had this somber tone and gave you the details you didn't want to hear. Now, a large part of the testimony during the trial that you're talking about is coming from survivors. But then also a relatively large number of the people who are in these public gatherings hearing this testimony are also survivors. And, And in addition to your main character in your book, having a little bit of this number counting sort of OCD behavior in general. Also the title, The Girl Who Counted Numbers, she's going around Jerusalem literally counting how many survivors she's seen who have numbers on their arms. Well, if you think about it, 1961 in America, people who were survivors, this is a generalization on my part, but I would say cover their arms. They covered their numbers. Right. They were not out in the sunlight. Israel was a warm, hot country, so there were numbers everywhere, and you couldn't help but count. And they moved on the people's arms. And when they were listening to the trial, people cried out. People were talking back and forth. It was almost, there was not a constant dialogue. There would be a testimony. One guard said, I really was only responsible for seven people. Only seven people. Only, only, and the word was only, only. And there would be people screaming, die, enough, enough, enough. And they would say, what are you talking about? I lost 16 people. I lost my own, all people. I'm the only survivor. So everyone in the space was hearing that. And yet at the same time, one of the fascinating conflicts in your novel 
is that while the trial brought together much of Israeli society, it didn't bring together everybody. In 1961, around the same time as the trial, you also have a large number of new immigrants to Israel from places like Morocco. And many of the new immigrants are, let's say, not being treated quite so fairly or quite so well by their new country uh, in terms of employment, housing, their financial situation, not to mention sort of culturally being pushed aside and not, not taken to the heart of Israeli culture yet. This part of the book, I drew directly from what I saw. Because here I was, I was living in this apartment across the street, and the woman who cleaned the toilets, the maid, was a Moroccan woman. And the construction workers on the street were all Tunisian, Moroccan. And last but not least, I went to an Ulpan. And then what happened when I got to Ulpan Etzion? The class was filled with Moroccans. Aha. Uh-huh. New well, immigrants. New immigrants. Some of them there three months, some of them there two years. But here they were in the class. Some knew a little Hebrew. The teacher was very Ashkenazi, strict. And it made me ill because what were the words she wanted them to learn? Cleanliness, loyalty. I mean, I was young, but you didn't have to be very old and very sophisticated or brilliant to realize it was a lesson, not just... Right. uh, It was proselytizing. It was transforming them. When we would have lunch, I actually heard them moaning. They would think of the bougainvillea that they didn't see, and they would think of the food, and they would think of their mothers, and they were aware of the words they were given. So what was clear to me is in this book, I had to do two things. It wasn't just the story of the Achmed trial. It was the story of this tension in Israel. So the plot of my book had to involve this Ashkenazi girl and this other, this other population, this immigrant population that was somehow not brought into the drama of Israel, the trial. But so far, all of this is backdrop, which is what's so wonderful about The Girl Who Counted Numbers is that the backdrop is so rich. We haven't even gotten to the main plot right. of the story. Right. So the, the main thrust, what gets the story going, is a young woman who is sent by her father to go to Israel to try to track down her uncle. Correct. He's been sort of MIA for years, decades by this point, And decades, it's unclear decades. when the family... When her father and his family immigrated from Europe to the States, this brother, the main character's uncle, stayed behind. Right. And no one knows, right. is he alive? Is he dead? Was right. he killed in the camps? Where, If he is alive, where is he? No one can find him. Now, without giving too much away, it's not only the mystery of Uncle Yaakov and what actually happened to him if he's, in fact, still alive. But along the way, Susan, the main character, meets, during the Eichmann trial in Israel, meets many other survivors. And she learns a lot of people's secrets, secrets they have often from things that happened during the Holocaust, surprising things people did to survive that they may or may not now regret, relationships they had that they may or may not now be ashamed of, secret love affairs, including a gay love affair. What is the nature and what you're trying to get out about secrets and who has the right to tell them and who has the right to keep them? What a profound question. Well, I used to hang out in Cafe Atara and I understood Hebrew. They weren't talking to me, but they would sit there, smoke, drink black coffee, and there was a lot of secret telling. It was as if 
they had not been able to fess up. They had survived Hitler and Holocaust. Maybe their immediate family or someone knew. Maybe there was no immediate family. They were alone. And so you tended to find people starting to tell some of these stories. I was raped. I had a gay lover. My neighbors betrayed us. My best friend betrayed me. I mean, some of the stories are quite horrible. What's fascinating to me is that not all of them are horrible. That you expect when you're hearing Holocaust stories that, of course, horrible things happen. And that's clearly part of the book, too. But what's surprising is that some of the secrets people are most reluctant to share are about love and desire. That seems to be the thing that's that's most difficult. That's where I turned it inside out. When I was writing the book, I had this vision that I had to do that turn because that it all wasn't about the horror, but it was about love. It was about love that went beyond what the rules were, what the standards were, gay or not gay, Jewish or not Jewish, etc. And And so these things happened, but they weren't all bad. This is not a book about, here's a book about the Holocaust and here are all the horrors. Right. This is not that book. This is a book about love and survival and what people do to love and live. So I want to ask you one last question. I've known you primarily as a journalist for many years. You've taught journalism for many years. A lot of these topics are things that you could have tackled through journalism. You could have reported on how the Eichmann trial took place and reported on how it was received or reported on North African immigrants to Israel in the 60s. But you chose for the first time to write a novel to turn to long-form fiction. Why? Because this story burned a hole in my soul, honestly. I cannot tell you how many times, I'll say a day, but maybe more likely a week, I thought about this. I think this was a story somehow I wanted to tell. Maybe I was afraid to tell. Maybe it took me courage to tell it. So why now? Maybe I had to be older, freer. Maybe like Ezra and Ruth and Yaakov, I had to let this secret out of me. Very well said. Rosalind Bernstein, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. The book is The Girl Who Counted Numbers, out from Amsterdam Publishers. And I'm thrilled it's well worth the seven-year wait. Thank you, Ross. Thank you. Now for our Mazel Tovs, let's take you to our live show at the General Assembly in Chicago last Sunday night. So we're going to do Mazel Tovs, but you guys get to do them too. So Does, we'll kick things off. Yeah, we'll, we'll kick things off. Turn. I'm going to start with the Mazel Tov. Alana Newhouse from the opening ceremonies just did an amazing job. She is our editor-in-chief at Tablet Magazine, and she was amazing. And I feel like just just really, really proud. Big Mazel Tov to her. And for putting this. up with us. Yes. I have, <laughs> I have a lengthy Mazel Tov. Number, I was just on a tour. I Thursday night, I went to George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, and I want to give a mazel tov to Rabbi Dan there, who's doing an amazing job building out that Jewish community at, at George Mason. Then I went to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I gave... Are you from Eau Claire or just Wisconsin? Wisconsin. 
So I went to Eau Claire where Rabbi Natalie Shribman is doing the Lord's work and keeping the Jewish spark As alive in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Also University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire. Spoke to them. Spoke at Temple Sholem in Eau Claire. Then drove to Wausau, Wisconsin, where Natalie's beshared her husband, Rabbi Benjamin Altshuler, is at Mount Sinai Temple in Wausau, doing amazing work there. And I spoke to them uh, a couple times there as well and did a couple events there. And I just want to say that those cheesehead Jews are amazing. Uh, they have so much spirit, uh, such great conversation, so much ruach. It was, it was so exciting. But almost as exciting is former Jew of the Week shoe designer Stuart Weitzman, who I just learned, scrolling back into sort of news that I missed over the summer, back in, I think, August, was on the United States team that won a bronze medal in ping pong at the, I always mispronounce this. We don't know how to say Maccabia, it. Maccabia, Maccabia, Maccabia. Maccabia, guys, this is not hard. <laughs> Maccabia. Have we decided how we're saying it? Maccabia. Maccabia. But you give us different answers. <laughs> Maccabia. At the Jew Games. He won, He was on the American bronze medal winning team at the Jew Games. Stewie they Weitzman. Did they don't call it that? That's not no, their branding. The multi-talented Stuart Weitzman. The multi-talented Stuart Weitzman. Love it. So Mazel Tov to rabbis Natalie Shribman and Benjamin Altshuler and Rabenu, ping pong talent and shoe designer Stuart Weitzman. <laughs> uh, I have a Mazel Tov as well. It is very uh, easy for us as our job is to get together once a week and tell jokes to lose track of the real work, the hard work, the not fun work that takes place and that makes this community possible. So I would like to extend a very deep and very heartfelt thank you to everyone sitting in this room for everything that you do every day without applause. So let's have a moment and give you what you deserve. Really playing to the base there, making us all look bad. It's um, easier if you believe you it. Thank you all. All right, let's get... Sir, tell us your name. Um, I'm Evan Hochberg. Actually, my boss deserves a mazel tov for being Jew of the Week, but that's not what I wanted to do. Um, my daughter, Sophie, is being bat mitzvahed in a little less than two months, so I wanted to wish a mazel tov to her. Wow. Amazing. Um, what's, what's her parsha? Vayeshev. Ooh. Very good one. Um, right, we're going to do side by side, please. Mina Rush from Los Angeles. I had not one, but two children get married this year. So mazel tov to Harel and Ariella Rush, Anatara and Jason Eisner. And if my boss listens to this podcast, I could probably use a raise to pay for some of this. So. So I'm Karen Maher. I'm from Colorado Springs, Colorado, and I'm sending Mazel Tov to my good friend Carrie Schillinger, who is probably one of the biggest fans of your podcast that I've ever met. And I just want to give her a shout out that we'll get on the air so that she'll listen to it. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, I'm Hillary Siebel from Delaware, Jewish Federation. We're coming. November 17th. We're so excited Dinner to welcome Mrs. you Rubino's guys. for all of us. Yes, we are so excited to welcome you. And just a big shout out to my staff, Nicole Terranova and Seth Katzen and everybody at JFD. They're wonderful. And they've made it a wonderful year joining the Federation family. And can't wait to have you guys. Thank See you. See you very soon. Hi, I'm Hallie Gordon from Austin, Texas, and I just, woo, I just wanted to give a big mazel tov to my mom, who's also a fan of the show, Lisa Gordon. She just got a brand new job at the University of Texas, so mazel tov, mom. Yeah. 
I want to give a muscle tap to myself for my 22nd anniversary to my husband, Adam Levin, without the E. From <laughs> <laughs> Not the lead singer Maroon 5. From out, yeah. Because if so, I hear he does some things on the, the internet with women. Just saying. Just from Elkins Park. Yeah. All right. Elkins Park. Elkins Park. So you married the good Adam Levine. Congratulations. Mazel tov. Amazing. Um, I'm also from Pennsylvania. Uh, Rachel Yakubashvili from the Philly area. Was I new? Oh, mazels. Um, <laughs> I wanted to say mazel tov to anyone who put together or attended uh, Jewish Women International's uh, International Conference on Domestic Violence last week. Um, it was an amazing conference, and I am very excited about the work that's going to come out of it. So mazel tov. Yay. Hi, I'm Judy Lansky, and I want to give a mazel tov to my friend, Allie Manchel. She's who told me about your podcast originally. She's a big fan, and she completed the Detroit Half Marathon a couple weeks ago, and she got her best time ever. Yeah. Joe Wine from Chicago. So I have two, actually. The first is a mazel tov to my daughter, Rachel Wine, and her new fiancé, Joy Alatican. Mazel tov. And the second is uh, our youngest daughter, Shira, played ice hockey at the first women's Maccabiah. Nice. Uh, three that's teams. That's how you pronounce it. There yep, that's a, how you do it, and that's how you pronounce point it. Point taken. There was a, an American women's team, a Canadian women's team, and an Israeli women's team. We got our butts kicked by the Canadians, but... <laughs> so I said, the documentary of this tournament is Miracle and Ice, Jews playing hockey. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jill Deutsch from Boca Raton, Florida, and I want to give a mazel tov to Derek, Cole, and Micah, who both have birthdays the first week in November. Um, a mazel tov to my husband, Ted Deutsch, who just finished his first month as CEO of American Jewish Committee. Wow. And an advanced mazel tov to my son, who's doing a half Ironman triathlon next week. I like this family. There's a lot going on in wow. this family. Wow. <laughs> what a month you guys are having. Thank you. I'm doing a 20th marathon next week. I'm running one point something miles. <laughs> I'm sorry. Hi, I'm Amy Kaufman from originally Venezuela and now Denver. And my son just celebrated, my oldest one celebrated his 20th birthday this week. And it's the first time in years that we got to celebrate him at home. So that was exciting. Oh. Mazal of Lior. And my youngest one is abandoning us because he's going to be a graduating senior in May. So Mazal Tov to him. And my nephew is getting married and we call him Giga because he's... Gilad, and the girlfriend is Gabby, so Mazal Tov Giga. <laughs> <laughs> one more. Make it epic. You're the Jody last Preminger, one. Jody no pressure. I I, I, there's two things. I'd like to thank the local Jewish Federation, Mazal Tov. My daughter is on that committee. They have done a phenomenal job. So thank you, Chicago Jewish Federation. And a Mazal Tov to my mother, who turns 93 next week with... Four daughters, eight. Bottom chases, nine great-grandchildren. Wow. Ten grandchildren, nine great-grandchildren, and 93. And we should all live such wonderful lives. Wow. Amen, Salah. 
Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, and Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. Tonight, we're coming to you live from Chicago, Illinois, where we're here with our colleagues, Tanya Singer and Sam Hacker. Our producers are Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Okay, rabbinic supervision by our hosts, Niv Ellis, Elisa Brodner, and the leadership of Jewish Federations of North America. We come to you from the Hilton in downtown Chicago. Shalom, friends. <laughs> yeah! Thank you. Thank you. Rock and roll.